So we're carrying on in the book of Judges. We're into Gideon. I'm going to add another week for Gideon rather than rush through because he's long. It's a long chapter, long three chapters on Gideon. So we're going to do today, we're looking at the end of chapter 6, so verses 33 in chapter 6, all the way through to the end of chapter 7. So here we are. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah, Moray, sorry, in the valley. And the Lord, uh, the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as the dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and they sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But... If you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were, with, who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore is, a, is sorry, in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. He, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley, tum, barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, 
This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into, their hand, into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against the, all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah and Tabath, or by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters of, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Okay. Classic story, if you're a Christian at all, you know it. If you've watched VeggieTales, you know it, that they do leave out the beheading of Oreb and Zeb in VeggieTales. Um, classic story. Now, in the Bible, in the, the Jews would call these books of the Bible, so these, what we call the history books, Joshua, Judges, Kings, Samuel, all that, we call them history books. The Jews refer to it as the lesser prophets, part of the prophetic works. And the reason they do that is because prophets tell history as prophets do, and they don't tell just plain history. And so let me just set the stage. I find it helpful, and on Tuesdays with our class, we find it helpful sometimes to, to have a map so you can see what's happening, because you may not... It's hard. You read all these names. You don't know what's going on. I don't... It's hard. So let me walk through how history might record this. If you're learning about this battle in a history class at any university, they will leave out the godly parts. They'll just tell the facts. And here's what, you'll, what you need to know as far as the the raw data of this battle. Gideon lives in Ophrah, that dot at the top near the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is down there just for context, so you know the, di the distance, roughly. Now, what happens is the annual, the time of the, uh, the year where the Midianites would come and raid Israel has come upon them. So Midian comes and floods into the Jezreel Valley just south of Ophrah, where Gideon lives, and they set up camp at the hill of Morah, or Moreh. Gideon then musters his forces of 32,000 men against 135,000 men, and he sets them up just south of Midian at a place called the Spring of Herod. And just for your knowledge, Herod is the Hebrew word for trembling. So when there's a lot of people afraid here, it's not by accident. 
So he assembles his, his team here. And this is what a historian might say. What we know is there was a big mismatch in numbers, and things got a lot worse. Something happened in the course of the night that, win, that dwindled the, the Israelite forces down from 32,000 down to 300. Gideon, being a general, realized he had to do something with this inferior army. So he devises this plan. And the plan is he's going to set up the, team, the, the people, his men, in three groups of 100. And they're all going to have jars with torches and a, a trumpet. And they're going to try to cause confusion in the camp because that's the only ally they have. So they're going to stand in this heightened position because the Midianites are in the valley and the, and the Israelites have, a, have the advantage up high. And they're going to shine the torches all around the middle of the night. The third, though, the watch that they're setting was happening between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So somewhere around midnight, this happens. They're not expecting a nighttime attack. So Gideon is hoping to catch them by surprise. He realizes he doesn't have the numbers. So he has torches, and he causes confusion by breaking them, causing a ruckus, and screaming this crazy battle cry. Because he knows that they are terrified of not just God, but of Gideon, son of Joash. So he cries out. And the battle works, this, this plan works perfectly, history would say. Because the Midianites then get into confusion. Gideon realizes at this point he can't kill all these Midianites with 300 men. So he calls reinforcements from four tribes. Asher, Nephtali, Zebulun, and Manasseh. And they are to come in and help rout this confused and chaotic Midianite army. Midian decides, well, we have to get out of here. So they start going south down the Jordan to escape back to the land of Midian. Gideon realizes that if they're not diligent, they're going to get away. So he calls the tribe of Ephraim to join in. Ephraim is in the south. And Ephraim comes and cuts off the army as it's retreating and forces them to then head over the Jordan and towards a town, which we'll hear about next week, called Sukkoth and Penuel. You'll hear about this later. And this is where the chapter ends. Okay? That's the history. What the Bible then does, the prophets do, is the prophets tell history the way it ought to be told. They say, it's not just the facts of what happened. I'm now going to show you, say the prophets, what God was doing in the history why it happens. If history tells you what happened, the prophets and the Bible says this is why it happened and what God was up to in the midst of it. And as we look at this passage, this beautiful story, this interesting story, we're going to see that it's really tells us all about the place and power of faith and the pride and, and how faith acts as a remedy to pride. And so three things we're going to see is a problem, a remedy, and then how you get the remedy. And those things are the problem is pride, the remedy, says God, continually in Scripture, is faith. But then, how do you get that faith? Well, it points us to the cross. So, let's begin with pride. Gideon. So, the fleece test. Gideon is still unconvinced. He's still not convinced uh, that, that God will come through. And so, he lays out this fleece and this fleece test. We've talked about it before. Um, he was not sure that God would... Uh, would would do all the things he said. And then when the Midianites show up as a swarm of locusts, you see how the narrator says they're like locusts, numberless as the sand. They're building the tension. They're trying to show you how Gideon has no hope here by himself. And Gideon now realizes his calling isn't just words. Now he has to actually do what he's called to do. And so he gets a little nervous. So he asks for a test. And we've talked about this already a little. I won't belabor it. 
The fleece test has been revealed through history and archaeology. We know it was something pagans did. So don't lay out fleeces for, for God. But we, don't, we can't be too hard on Gideon. I want to be gentle on him because the Bible's quite gentle on Gideon. And in your community groups, they're going to talk about this a little this week. But here's what we do know. Gideon is definitely lacking faith. He needs to be told again and again that God will do what he says. He needs to be shown it. But, and we also know this. Up until this point in the book of Judges, God has tested Israel, and he says, I'm testing you, on a few occasions. This is, but now the table's been turned, and now Israel is trying to test God, which is usually not a good thing in Scripture, but not always. This is why we have to be cautious. In Psalm 95, it tells us very clearly, God says, don't be like those, the, the Jews, the Israelites in, in, the, in the wilderness. They were always asking for signs. Don't be like that. And yet, God will come to the king Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7 and say, ask for a sign. And he'll say, I won't ask you for a sign, trying to be noble. And God says, fine, I'm going to give you one anyway, because you should have asked for one. So, and that's, of course, the sign of a virgin will be with child. Now, because scripture is like that, we have to at least be humble when we come to Gideon. As much as I really want to push him and say, he is a fallible, broken human, he is a human, like us, needing assurance. So he needs this assurance. God then graciously gives him the assurance, miraculously says, yes, it's not the way to relate to me, but okay, I'll do it. Um, and then, although he's given Gideon assurance, then he does something really radical. He says, yes, yes, I'll do all this for you, but you have too many men. You can't do it. I'll do it, but not through 32,000, not even through 10,000. It'll be through 300. And so he's reducing this army, and he tells us exactly why. I have to reduce the army because otherwise your pride will dominate. You'll think you won this battle, and I have to rip that away from you. So you'll at least, maybe if I give you 300, you'll think it was me. So he reduces the number down. We're going to talk a lot more about that, the, how he does it in the, in the second point. So he does this. But if the uncertainty in Gideon was high when he thought he had to face 135,000 with 32, when he has to face them with 300, that uncertainty turns into abject fear. And we know it because God anticipates it. Again, this gracious God knows Gideon is afraid, anticipates it, and says, I've got this plan. I will allow you to eavesdrop on this, these two Midianite soldiers talking about a dream because I know you'll be encouraged by that. And so... He goes and he orchestrates everything. He even tells Gideon he could take somebody with him if he's afraid. Gideon hears it, and then he worships. You'll hear this in your community groups too. This is the only time Gideon will wor- last time Gideon will ever worship again, at least in the, in the Bible. And it's the last time God will speak to Gideon is in this episode. And then he won't speak to him anymore for the rest of the story. Why? You can talk about that in your groups. But what we do know is this. Gideon will not trust the word of God that says, I will save you, but he trusts the words of the Midianites when they say God is going to save him. That's a problem. We should at least be saying why. Why is the word of man more powerful to him than the word of God? It's one question. The second interesting thing is, how come the Midianites have more faith than an Israelite? They trust God will win this battle. Gideon doesn't. These are questions we have to at least ask. The Bible says, well, presents them, lays it out before us. And we have to ask, what is going on in Gideon's heart? But this is what we know no matter what. The focus is not on Gideon, it's on God. This God who is so patient that he is saving Israel, but shaping Gideon at the same time. And this plan works. After he does this, Gideon is encouraged. 
He has this plan, which we have to assume is from Gideon, because God never tells him to do this plan. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But Gideon comes up with this strategy to fight, which may be why he's called a man of valor. He's a good tactician. He's smart. He knows what he's doing. But he does this. But even here, we have to ask questions. Remember, God reduces the number down to 300. And then after Gideon, you know, Gideon's at the, in chapter three, 6 says, um, where is this God of miracles? He's abandoned us. I've never seen him. I don't think he's real. And yet, here is this God of miracles who now presents him with a miraculous rout of a far superior enemy. And rather than sit and say, okay, we've won. The 300 should be able to do it because that's what God said. Just take the 300. Gideon then calls reinforcements to help. And that may seem like a strategic, really intelligent thing to do, but God has literally just said, don't take all these people with you. And he has just, Gideon has now seen the army, is, everything God has said has come true. The enemy is fleeing. Why then does he call more people to do it, to, to finish, this, finish what God has started? Does God tell him to? No. Is it bad? We don't know. Again, Scripture doesn't tell us. But we're left with these questions. Why does he need more help? And it seems to be that he continues to have a fear of man. Chapter 6, verse 27, he's afraid to go take down the poles because of the men, so he takes more men with him. I take 10 servants, and I'm going to go at nighttime, and I'm going to find a way to do this. Gideon is continually afraid of men before God, and this happens throughout. And so he thinks he can provide comfort for himself. He thinks he can win this, and he has to supplement what God is doing. At least that's what it looks like. But here is, I think, where we get to this question of pride. Fear at its root is pride. And the man who helped me see this many moons ago, something he wrote, actually, and had nothing to do with Gideon, was a pastor named John Piper. And he wrote about a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 51, and I'll explain this here. Here's the passage. It's God speaking to Israel. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of, a man, of man who dies? of the son of man who is like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker. So what God is saying to Israel is this. God is the comforter. I provide. I give you peace. I, make it, I, I am the one who looks after your health and your well-being and your financial position. Everything is me, nobody else. Fear comes in to us and says, no, no, no. I am responsible for my comfort, not God. He can't be trusted with this. Yeah, he's a good God. He's great, but... I've got to look out for number one. And so fear comes in and says this to us. And Gideon, I think, is saying exactly this. He knows God has done now what he said. And yet, he says, but I know they're running, but let me just make sure. And he calls more people to help when he's not supposed to. Isn't it interesting that God gives him 300, and none of those 300 even lifts a sword, ever. The scripture doesn't tell us it does, that they do. So why is it that Gideon feels that need? Well, it's because Gideon is continually trying to learn who God is. You have to remember that Gideon is a pagan. Gideon is a man who is not entirely a Jew. We talked about that last week. He's mixed his religions a little. So he's starting to get used to who Yahweh is. And because he's starting to get used to him, it's kind of like uh, you and I for rehab. You know, Christianity and, and faith in God is like rehab. You come and you've got all this baggage you know, we use images in the Bible about who God is. He's a father, he's a husband, he's a king, all these things. 
But when you and I come to Christianity, you come with an idea of what a husband is, depending on what your situation is like with your husband or wife, or what your parents were like. You have an idea of what a king is like based on how our governments treat us. You have an idea of what friends are like based on what your friendships are like. And so, when you come to Christ, like Gideon is now coming to God, he's having to figure out, hold on, I've dealt with gods for a long time, Baal and Asherah, and they can't be trusted. I have to bribe them continually. This is one of the reasons the Reformation took such umbrage with monastic living. It was not because they had a problem with monks, but because they were concerned that the assumption was, I have to pursue the perfect life. That's my goal, to be saved. So there's a concern there. I'm not saying that's where they were 100% right, but that was the assumption. And we come with this baggage, and we think, okay, I know husbands. I've got to feed, you know, it's Wilma in Flintstones. Remember, I have to, if he's a chubby hubby, he's a happy pappy, she said. Um, sorry, my Flintstones are coming to mind. This idea that you have to appease the God. So Gideon is trying to understand God. He's wrestling with who is this God of the Bible? So I don't want to condemn him entirely. He's wrong in what he's doing, but how many of us are wrong in how we relate to God? Because we're getting to know him. Because he's not the husband who abused you. He's not the wife who neglected you. He's not the parent who abandoned you. He's not the king who doesn't care about you. And so God is gracious and patient while Gideon is trying to figure out who this guy is, who God is. And back to this idea of pride. When God says, I am your comforter, who are you to be afraid of man? Piper does a beautiful thing. He says, you know, it's like if you're in your office as, as a worker or if you're at home as a parent. A parent is probably better. You're at home as a parent and you're doing something and your child runs up to you and says, where's my dinner? You would, I don't know what you would do, but you would rightly say something like, you have a lot of nerve coming in here and talking. Who do you think you are talking to me like that? And what he is saying, God is saying is, who do you think you are? Israel. You've made too much of your ability to bring yourself comfort and too much of your enemy and not enough of me. And when you do that, it's pride. You have heaped too much pride. You're, you're rooted, working out of your pride, thinking that you know better how to comfort yourself than God, that he knows that you can provide better, and that this enemy is too big. 135,000 running away, 300 can't kill them. God, I know what God said, but practically speaking, I'm being a good steward here. Are you? Be careful. This is that old, age-old question, and I know I will hammer it often. Did God say? Did God say? So, John Piper, talking about this passage in Isaiah, and he refers to evangelism, but you'll see the point is clear for us. God promises to be our comforter and protector, but we deny the credibility of God's word and allow fear to set the limits of our obedience. Every time we let fear hinder us in an opportunity to share the gospel, we are proudly regarding our emotions as more trustworthy, as a, as a more trustworthy portent to the, of the future than the promises of God are. So it makes very good sense that God should say, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of, men, of man who dies? So when we allow ourselves to fear the displeasure of man, we are acting arrogantly. We are presuming to set our wisdom above God's promise. That's the key. Gideon, like us, often allows the, the fear in front of him, the reality he sees in front of him, trump the promises of God. And I'm not here going to hammer him completely because I do it all, we do it all the time. But this is a problem here, a huge problem for him. So, 
If that's the case, what's the answer then? Well, the remedy to this sort of fear and this pride is faith. It's presented as faith time and again all through Scripture. But let's look at it here. In this, the fleece test gives Gideon courage. After he's assured by God, he then goes and he rallies the troops to get ready for the fight. But although courage is there, pride remains. And so God comes and says, hold on, there's too many. And so because, you know, I've read this often, let me be clear. Why does God cut the army down? It cannot be that he is trying to cut it down to 300 elite soldiers, that he wants 300 James Bonds, Jason Bournes, Audie Murphy. Who knows Audie Murphy? Yeah, one, one. Audie Murphy was the most decorated soldier in World War II. And he's not looking for that because God has already said, I'm going to reduce the number to, to kneecap your pride. He's not looking for the best 300 soldiers. So don't read it and say, ah, you know, the ones who lapped like this, they're better soldiers because they kept their eye out for the enemy. People say, say that. That's not what's happening. God is not interested with the quality of soldier, but the quantity. He needs to get the number down to, to drag pride out of Gideon and out of Israel and out of us. So the number is, is most important. And he, you know, Gideon is prone, as all of us are, to trust our numbers and our strategy. And God says, I can't have it. And he, here's the important thing about Gideon and all the judges. Gideon is there to, not to bring victory, but to witness victory. Now, if you don't know if that's true, look at what he says so clearly but so subtly in this passage. Gideon, before the fleece test, comes before God, and he says, if you will save Israel by my hand, yada, yada, sorry, fleece. Yada, yada is Hebrew for you know. Did you know that? You know, you know, you know. Anyway, side note. So he asks Israel, he asks God, will you save Israel? If you do, do this fleece test. But God's response is brilliant. Look at what he says. I'll read it from the back because I don't want to look down here and find it. With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. See what he says? He doesn't say I'm going to save Israel. Well, he is. I'm going to save you, Gideon. Because Gideon thinks he is going to save Israel. And God says, no, no, through these 300, I'm going to save you, Gideon. Not just Israel. You, you are witnessing my victory. You're not, victor, you're not victorious for Israel. I am Yahweh. Christ will be victorious for the church. Not you, not Carl, not Redeemer. And so Gideon needs to be smacked, as we often do, to be told time and again, hold on, yes, I'm using you, but make no mistake, you're not the one saving anybody, Gideon. I will save everybody through, my, through, through you, but it's God at work. He is trying to kill the pride in Gideon. Now, even this Midianite dream, have you thought about the dream? Charles Spurgeon, so much brighter than I'll ever be. Notice this. This dream comes. No, don't put it up yet. We're not ready for this yet. This dream comes. And when Gideon goes and he's encouraged by the word, and that's good, he should be encouraged. That's the point of the dream, to encourage Gideon. But there's something far more going on. And look at what Spurgeon brilliantly notices. I think if I had been Gideon, I would have said to myself, I do not so much rejoice in what this dreamer says as I do in the fact that he has told his dream at the moment when I was lurking near him. I see the hand of the Lord in this, and I am strengthened by the sight. Verily, I perceive that the Lord works all things with unfailing wisdom and fails not in his designs. He that has ordered this matter can order all, thing, all other things. O child of God, when you are troubled, it is because you fancy that you are alone. 
but you are not alone. The eternal worker is with you. Spurgeon notices Gideon is marveling at the, at the Midianites' words, but what he should be marveling at is the fact that God has orchestrated this scene so that after negotiating with, with Gideon and getting his friend Purah to go with him, after walking to, the, to the, the front lines of the Gideon camp or the Midianite camp, at that very moment, the word he needs is being spoken. That sovereignty of God to orchestrate all things in history to allow Gideon to be encouraged in that moment should have caused Gideon to say, if he can do this, what can't he do? But he doesn't see it, and that's okay. I mean, how many things have we missed today? So I'm not entirely hammering Gideon, but we are here to say, my goodness, what can't he do for us? Now, if Gideon wants to ever stop being afraid, because he's going to stumble again, right? Because Gideon shows courage. He wants to go, and he's, he's encouraged. He, he's ready. He goes to fight. But then that courage, or something about it, gives way when he brings others to help fight, when he realizes he, he thinks he needs more soldiers. So if Gideon wants to stop being afraid, he needs to trust God, because he can't trust himself, no matter how much he tries. If he, was, if he could be at peace with just his own ability, he would have been, because he had done a lot of wonderful things, and he's going to do great, interesting things. But he needs, if he's going to stop being proud and fearful, he has to first trust God. This is the key of all of this. Because Yahweh is not a pagan God. He's not a man. He will prove faithful. And he's our only hope for peace. And the last quote I will use before we finish here is another prof named Kalos and Younger. And he wrote a lot on the book of Judges. And he says something so good. Sometimes God has to take us through such experiences to expose our fear and lack of trust in him. God must break down the walls we have constructed to hide our fears and lack of trust in him. God must remove the foundations of these walls that hold us from belief. If we continue to depend on other things for our security and confidence, God must remove these to bring us to the point of true dependence on him alone. God brings Gideon to the point where he either must trust God or reject him altogether. It's true. See, and I've said this in other groups and classes before, the story of Abraham and Isaac at Mount Moriah in Genesis 22 is the greatest test of faith that I know of in the Old Testament. And that's why Israel writes so much about it. Two things dominate Israel's writing about God, the Red Sea and Mount Moriah. And at Mount Moriah, reason takes Abraham as far as it can go and he has to show faith. If you're a skeptic who doesn't like the idea of faith, you always are exercising faith. You can't know anything until you have tested it. Let me show you. Abraham, go and bring up your son and kill him at the top of this mountain. Now, Abraham has options. Kill him or not kill him, right? That's the options. If he kills Isaac, then what happens is he loses the promise because the promise is, I will bless the nations through you. But it only can happen if there is a seed, if he has a child. There's, nobody else, there's no other way. So if he kills Isaac, he loses the promise. But if he doesn't kill Isaac then he loses the promise because it was credit to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6, that he believed. The promise was given because he had faith. If he kills him, he loses the promise. If he doesn't kill him, he loses the promise. Abraham is up a creek. At that point, Abraham must weigh everything he knows about God and make a decision. Will I trust him or not? As Younger says, I either trust God or reject him. That's the option. Abraham chooses to go ahead and try to sacrifice Isaac. We know it doesn't happen. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, tells us why he does it. And I didn't understand it as a first when I was a Christian, when I became a first early Christian. 
But he says, Abraham did it because he believed in the resurrection. And I thought, what? That's a big step. No, it's not a big step. Abraham does it because he says, I will not disobey God. And God will not prove himself false. He will be faithful. So I am going to do this because if he dies, then God must be able to raise the dead because he's not going to prove unfaithful. That's not the God we have. Will not the God of the universe do what is just, he says in chapter 18 of Genesis. And so Gideon is brought to a spot, as you and I are, that says you have to choose him or not. And if you're a skeptic, you say, well, I don't like the gamble. Oh, that's your choice. But understand, you gamble all the time. You don't know your wife is right for you or your husband. You could do all the due diligence in the world. You can go and check the teeth of their parents. You can go check bank accounts. You can say things like, oh, you know, the husband, you know, his dad looks pretty good at 50. My dad, by the way, was this tall and really skinny and a military man. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> right? So you can do all the due diligence. When you hire somebody, you can do everything you can, but until you hire the person, you don't know if it's going to work. Like it or not, friends, you may say the weather is good for boating, but until you get on the water, you don't know if the water is right. And so God drags Gideon to a place where he must not just, not just a place of, 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 of challenge, but it's a place where it's not just saying, I do have faith, but a place where he must exercise faith. And that's hard. So he's brought to that spot. Lastly, how do you get there? So why is it that's so hard? How do you believe? How do you trust God? Why do we, <laughs> it's so difficult for us. Because um, Gideon has and will continue to get to know God. First of all, I think that's the important part. Gideon is going to continue to get to know God. And he is being shown by God every step of the way that God is not the monkey's paw. He's not a Stella. He's not a karmic God, you know, the God of karma. That if Gideon is good, then he gets good. That's behind the lie of the prosperity gospel, that God is that sort of a, a tit-for-tat, cause-and-effect sort of God. It's not true. But he needs to realize that God is a person. And you can't relate to a person without getting near a person. I've said that before. And so, the hint for how we do this, how do we get faith, how, is it, how can we begin to grow in faith, is actually in that weird dream. And again, Spurgeon showed me this. In that dream... The Midianite, you know, it's kind of weird, right? This loaf of bread comes rolling down and crushes the tent of Midian. And I always thought it was a loaf of bread until I read Spurgeon, a man with no degrees, who knows far more than I'll ever know about Scripture. And he says, it's not a loaf, it's a cake. And he's right. It says it in the English, so how I read loaf, I don't know. And in the Hebrew, it's the same. It's even smaller than a loaf. <laughs> it's like a little thing. It's like a, those little pitas that you get at the Costco, you know? It's tiny. So it's actually more incredible that this little thing would crush a tent. But how could it crush a tent, says Spurgeon. And he says, it's kind of like a bullet. He doesn't use a bullet. He's another example. But he says, you know, a bullet has no force. If you just push a bullet at you, it's not going to kill you. The power of the bullet isn't in the bullet. It's in the force that propels it. And he says, the force, what Gideon should have known, is that Gideon is the cake but there's no power in the cake to destroy a tent. The only way for that to happen is if it is thrown incredibly hard. Incredibly hard. Therefore, it's the thing behind the cake. Gideon should have said, I'm just a cake. We are just cakes. But God is the one behind it, moving it towards victory. Therefore, he gains victory, not us, not Gideon. And Gideon's peace 
his anxiety that he shows time and again of having to ask for assurance and where he starts building up his own kingdom, you're going to see in the next chapter. It's all because he won't rest that God, in, in the truth of who God is. And that's hard, and it is very hard. Now, here's the, here's the challenge where I'll really close. There's a problem because God doesn't save faithful people all the time, does he? Not from, not from their circumstances, certainly. Faithful people are martyred, they're killed, they struggle, they have hard lives, they have no money, they have no recognition, they have terrible marriages. There's faithful people are not always saved from their circumstances. And so, here is what we need to see. Gideon is not being saved from the Midianites. He's being saved from his idolatry and his lack of faith and his sin. Because Gideon's going to die. When you are saved from cancer by treatments or saved from a, a truck because somebody pulls you out of the way, that person has not done anything to save your life. They've prolonged it for a little bit, but they can't save your life. You see, a judge cannot save the life of Israel. Nothing will save the life of Israel until their real enemy is, hit, is destroyed. And the real enemy is death. And death, the real cause of death is sin. So until a judge comes who can save us from that, you are not to trust them. Not for everything. Gideon is a good guy. Pastor Carl is a whatever you want to say. But I am not to be trusted above God. Never. No one is. He is saving Israel from that. Now, um, let me get this where I am at here. And this comes, if death comes by sin, then God is pointing in Gideon's story to say, one man will come and he will save you. But he will save you from the real problem. Not the one that Gideon keeps getting wrong. Listen, Gideon, just for the record, Gideon's not going to do well. He doesn't end as a noble human being. He ends worse than he started. At least I think you guys can discuss it. We need someone who can, fi who can fix us, who can get this, this, this rut we're in solved. And this is where, what, who can save us from our sin? Who can save us from sin that we can't stop committing? And the sins we don't even know we commit. And it's that beautiful old hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you're a Christian, it's the bread of life, right? He is the bread of life that crushes our enemy. That's it. If you're a Christian, you are saved. Gideon, I have no doubt because of what Hebrews tells us, I will see him in heaven. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Do I have to book an appointment? I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be like. But he'll be there. I have no doubt about that because scripture tells us that. So you and I are saved. If you're a Christian, you are saved regardless of how well you now perform as a Christian. But if you want to begin living that freedom, you see other people and you think, boy, how can they be at peace when they're going through such trial? It's because they have started to trust God even amidst the storm. If you want to be living that freedom in the freedom that you already have, faith is the answer. That's the remedy. And if you're a skeptic, you're going to always be anxious. Always. Because you're always going to think that your safety and your peace rests upon you. And as a result, you deep down know you can't be that. You know you're actually not the person your friends think you are, your workplace thinks you are. And so you're always going to be anxious until you trust the one who can actually bring you peace. That's Christ. That's Gideon. Let's pray.